Hi, I'm Craig Finn. My new record, A Legacy of Rentals, is about memory. How we remember friends that are gone, places that have changed, major events that are part of our past. The songs are memorials, incantations, affirmations, legends, and prayers. Like all stories, they're subject to the imperfection and limitations of memory, the distortion that happens to our own histories when stretched by time and distance. These small adjustments become parts of the stories themselves. I love talking about this stuff, so I created this podcast, That's How I Remember It. It examines the connection between memory and creativity. Each episode features a discussion between myself and one creator about the role memory plays in their art. These conversations reveal different ways each creator synthesizes their remembered life experience to tell stories about themselves and the world we live in. My guest today is Emily Haynes. Emily's a songwriter, lead singer, and keyboardist of the band Metric, a band that has been a leader in rock for the last 20 years, both in the musical sense and the way they've done business independently. She's also released solo music as Emily Haynes and the Soft Skeleton, collaborated with a ton of artists, too many to actually name here. This year, her and Metric released an awesome, powerful, and timely record called Formentera, which is the band's eighth album. I'm really happy to welcome Emily Haynes to the show. The history's rewritten when the memories get meddled with the way that I remember it. Thanks so much for making the time. What's up? <laughs> Thanks for doing this. I'm going to start right uh, how I start all of these, which is, do you consider yourself to have a good memory? Yes. And how does it, how does that show up in your songs? Or how does that help? Well, it's funny because I live my life as part of a team, right? Um, which is, I'm realizing a little bit old school, in fact, the whole concept of a band as a sort of consciousness entity that you inhabit, you know, with three other brains. So there's a sort of puzzle piece thing that happens when the four of us are together where like you get the full picture, but we each kind of have our role in remembering certain aspects of things. Uh, so Jimmy, who founded the band with me, the guitar player and producer, uh, has one of his many nicknames is a GPS Jimmy. Um <laughs> I think you know where we're going with that, of like the idea that he's the guy I'll always remember. No, it was this date. It was that time. It was that street. My memory, not surprisingly, as the lyricist, I suppose, is much more anchored in narrative and like the emotional component of, of what was happening and the, you know, the sort of larger arc of the story of my life with these three guys. But it is it is funny to me, like, you know, this is not a rock moment in the world right now. Our genre is not having a moment. And even if it were, and even when it was, I still feel like we were subscribers to a very particular brand of what it means to be in a band. And it's not like, oh yeah, put like the blonde chick at the front and, you know, get three guys behind her, you know, to play like these prescribed instruments, you know. It's way more like the four of us started this story together and now we're in it. And it's the actual narrative construct of my life and my memory. I, I am also, I know what you're saying. I'm the guy who like that, you know, the band turns to and says, have we played this venue before? And I can say, yeah, it's got the L-shaped stage. You know, you walk in, there's a bar and everyone's like, oh yeah, yeah. But you know, I'm not as good as other things. But what about like in the songwriting? I mean, do you, a lot of the people I've been talking to have sort of said that memory shows up oftentimes in the details of their songs. Is that true for you? So there's an example, I think a good example on the new album, the song Paths in the Sky, which is pretty on brand for me of like, I just can't seem to write enough love songs to my friends. Um, I think there are too many boring, conventional, romantic love songs and not enough to the, like those other people that hold your life together. So that song, the, the first verse is like, you know, 
I'm describing this place that we, I picture this, this bar, which hilariously is this place in New York that I always get the address wrong. It was called like 169 or 179. My friend's always like, no, it's like 172. So I get that part wrong. But the visual of being in the back of the bar in the basement and going through like the worst time and just the feeling of walking into a bar down the stairs all the way to the back and seeing your friend in the dimly lit room. You know, I mean, you want to make me cry, Craig, we can I'll I'll cry right away Uh, because that's the that's the good stuff of life, you know. Um, So that's an example of where like there's a very specific physical place, even though hilariously, I can't seem to ever remember the address and it's gone now. Is it the 169 bar the in in at the top of Chinatown there? No, it's not the one in Two Bridges. It's like 176. It never had an I don't think it ever had a name. It was like the deepest of dive bars. Like this we're going back. This is an early early 2000s situation. Okay, cool. How about how about senses? Like like are there when you think about your memories are there senses like smell, taste that that are likely to trigger or that are part of the memories? I, I'm really sensitive to smell. I feel like I, like we all have those sort of childhood things where you can't completely understand why you kick up leaves in the park and suddenly you feel like you're, you know, seven years old again. But that's something that's definitely hard to capture in a musical composition. I have in all seriousness, and I'm glad you're reminding me because I'm going to bring it up again. I think it'd be great if you walk into a metric show and there's like, in addition to the sonics and the vibes, you get a sense you know, Formatera, let's get the sea brine. Let's get that oceanic feeling, you know, at uh, Brooklyn Steel. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that, that'd be a, a, a mister. I think light, for me, I've, I've become more attuned to like the lighting. Like, you know, when you, uh, you know, California has a certain type of sunlight and I, and I have that and I'm like, oh yeah, I turned 50 last year. And I, I think that is really conjure something for me, certain type of lights, but smell, yeah, taste, all that. I, I was talking to someone on the show and they said they remember being in the crib. Do you know how early your memories go back? I don't remember being in a crib. I remember, it, I don't know if you have the same thing where you feel like you remember a photograph of yourself as a child. I, I, I fear that those are my memories. Like I was born in New Delhi, obviously I, you know, we left when I was three or something. And I have no memory of my own of that, but I have like perfect romantic black and white exotic photos of, you know, this childhood that it's definitely not my memory. So, but I do remember swallowing a penny. And it, and it, you know how that goes. So <laughs> That's trauma. Yeah. I mean, that's sl- slight trauma at least. Yeah. Do you have first musical moments? Do you have like, like the first kind of you became interested in music? Yeah. I mean, I, I actually remember the first song that I wrote and I, I honestly, I don't think it was that bad, but my piano teacher at the time I was five, she felt differently. She told me it was too repetitive. Oh my God. And even as a kid, I remember being like, this is messed up, man. This is like, you know, this is a flash of things to come. This is pitchfork you know, out of the gate. Come on, I'm five. Cut me some slack. It was called Cranberry Tree. It was about, you know, the tree in the backyard. I thought it had a clever little bit where it was like, I described it and then you had to fill in the blanks. Like, you are a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But she was like, "Mm, no, too repetitive. 
Um, so she launched my punk rock spirit right then and there. I mean, yeah, I would have liked to play her can or some kraut rock thing that like to say like, look, listen to this. It's 14 minutes long and it does the same thing a lot. I had a song that I was working on forever when I was a kid and I only had the first line. It was keep your eyes open, keep your feet on the floor. But I could never get beyond that. But I, I remember I'd go to bed every night and thinking like, what, what, what's, you know, I think eventually must've been door, but I, I just, I knew, I thought that was opening a great opening and I never completed it someday. Maybe how about like, was there first, first music that was yours as like, you know, like, like that was separate from any family. Like, does there, like, was there as a teenager or maybe before? I was really connected to whatever my brother played me. He was, uh, so I know I'm sort of disobeying the paradigm here. You're setting up for this question, but, um, I, you know, I mean, I'm a rowdy guest, um, but cause if my memories of that, I think of as so personal are those times that my brother would bring me into his room and, you know, be like, stop listening to the crappy radio, get in here and listen to this television record, you know, or like telling me stories, which I swear to God, I think he permanently damaged my mind and consciousness when he told me the story when I was little of like, well, depend, you get damaged or like, you know, fixed me from from uh, whatever fate might have awaited me otherwise. But he told me that Patti Smith on stage always either had an orgasm or pissed herself. Whoa. And and I was like, what? I have to, I am going to achieve <laughs> these heights. You know, he's playing me the Velvet Underground record. He's playing with, but the, you know, and I'm sure it's like mixed up in my mind too with like Piss Factory, the amazing Patti Smith track, but... I, I have set that as a very high bar for myself. So, if, you know, if anyone ever wonders why I'm so fired up on stage, it's because I'm still trying to hit that mark that my brother set in my mind when I was like 11 or something. <laughs> That's amazing. I, when I was a kid, I, I someone told me that the reason that the doors have long songs is because... <laughs> If you smoke weed, it makes everything go really fast. And I, I mean, that was just bad info. <laughs> but I, mean, I remember taking that and being like, oh, that must be true. Some guy in the playground told me that. And I carried that as like true for a few years until I smoked weed myself and realized that it's not exactly that. Not exactly. This is something I've been really interested because in, I've been talking to everyone about this. Is there music... In, like when you listen to music that sounds better at certain seasons or in certain places, do you connect that or is it all the same to you? I think things are really contextual. It's like cigarettes mm. in Paris, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, what the hell? Why? What is it? A cigarette is a completely <laughs> different thing on a street in Paris, regardless of weather, than it is like in an alleyway in Hamilton, Ontario. Like it's just, yeah. there's just, it's a different thing. I, I can't explain it. So I, I feel definitely that music is is like that. And I, when we're on tour, I often torture my bandmates with, you know, all these mixes I put together of wherever we are, like years ago, obviously years ago when we were in Russia, I found all these like Victor Tsoi, this like underground artist. I researched all these musicians from wherever we were traveling. And so we would listen to the music when we were there. Some of it still works when you get home, but it's definitely, I think, um, context, you know, Serge Gainsbourg gets a little, gets a little much, out of out of context. <laughs> Same with the cigarettes. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I hear you there. When I started touring a lot in the UK, and I really hadn't toured 
I haven't traveled much before the band. And I, I really like, it really helped me to figure out what bands were from each city. Like I, it would become a blur unless I would say like, oh, Sheffield, Pulp is from here and Def Leppard's from here. And I could kind of, cause before that it was, they're from England, right? And yeah. so, so when I, when I got better at the geography by applying rock and roll history and my own listening to it, I kind of could make sense of it, which I love. I, and I, I still try to do that. But, you know, when you're talking about the, the photos and looking at stuff from New Delhi, for instance, I, I think I started forming memories about three or four. It was the Nixon era. I love movies, films, books from that time because I think it, when I look at it, it solidifies a memory that's almost on the tip of the tip of my brain, tip of my tongue. And when you look at film, music, books, art, whatever, are there eras that you're drawn to? Yeah, I, I agree. I was actually just thinking about this the other day, like the 70s, you know, like I was born in 74 and which is obviously the coolest year. Um, obviously, no offense to your year. 71. It's, it's fine. It'll do. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> 70s New York, I just can't get enough of it. And, you know, I think certainly partly that's the mythology of my family. My parent, my mom and dad were like part of the Greenwich Village scene, you know, Say earlier, much earlier, um, they were in India by the time they had me. But, you know, my brother born at Beth Israel in 65 or whatever it is. And just the, all the like the films from that time, the grittiness, the idea that like everyone wanted to leave because they were such babies and they couldn't handle it. And I like all the music that came out of this, like the anti-disco um, downtown scene you know, and the fact that I had the privilege of actually getting to meet some people who were fundamental in that time, particularly Hal Wilner, obviously. Um, to me, there's just kind of nothing better. And then, you know, I moved to New York in the late 90s and then went back as a, like, actually functioning musician and lived in Soho and felt all grown up and successful and stuff. And it was so interesting to me to be, like, you know, realize that I was still trying to find that you know, it's so transparent. It's actually pretty sad. But like, you know, the old world underground, I really genuinely like so kind of painfully, naively still feel that that is somewhere, somehow something I could inhabit. And if not, like we need to make it for ourselves or, you know, I really romanticize that, uh, that era. And it's pretty painful when you're then like there and it's just like a Euro shopping experience. It's like a Nespresso pod of life. It's like, oh, okay. Or that's cool too. You know, I mean, ristretto. <laughs> I moved in 2000 and I remember seeking out the factory and then Max is Kansas City. And you're like, it's a little bit disappointing what they are now, you know, but you, you have to sort of, but at the same time, I've been here 22 years now and I see like every building I look at, you, you have that New York moment of like, oh, that used to be a pizza place. Yeah. Oh, that used, you know, like, and, and it's, there's this sort of these ghosts always um, as, cause it's an ever changing city, you know. Which is kind of what I love about the city too, is that feeling of, um, you know, don't worry, like New York will be fine. You're, you're not going to be fine. You're going to come and go, but it's going to be fine. And, you know, I, I know part of your point with this podcast too, is it's not so much about nostalgia as just like examining memory. And, you know, I'm sure I'm romanticizing stuff that's, you know, like the CBGB's like Vervado's vibe. It's just kind of a bummer, I think, because what are the new things? Like, what are we, what are we looking at as our version of that? I don't, 
maybe you have some of those places, but most of them are like condo buildings or Whole Foods or whatever. I think it's easy. I think we all do. Well, like I love, I think we all think of the thing that's just before us, right? A little bit. Yeah. I do, you know? And then you sort of like people, the younger people are like, wow, that must've been amazing in 06. And you're like, it was all right. You know, like, like, I, you know, <laughs> for things I was there, I'm like, yeah, it was kind of cool, but uh, you know, it wasn't 76, whatever that was like. Oh my God. I saw, I heard a band recently um, who have a song and I was like, oh my gosh, they're, this is like, they're obviously taking the piss. And it was like, nope, they're, they're the line. The lyric was like, you know, I wish it was like the nineties and we could, you could come over and watch friends. And I'm, <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, Jesus, kill me. What? You know, but then it's like, well, I mean, it's literally the same thing These to them. They're like, yeah, the nineties, like there were like nines in there. It was the 19 something, <laughs> you know, it's the same thing as me romanticizing a cold water loft in Soho. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. You bring up the 90s, and I, for me, I don't love the 90s. Like, And I really remember, like, if you said something happened in 93, uh, it could have happened in 98 to me. Like, it's a little bit of a blur. Um, because I don't think, I was in my 20s, and I was working on stuff, and it just wasn't happening, and it all ran together. Are there periods of your life that you have, like, more vivid memories? Or, conversely, do you have any gaps? Um, yeah. I mean, the gaps... <laughs> Unfortunately, the gap is, it's, it's about a decade long, um, <laughs> but uh, only, only in so much as like, I think people deal with grief in different ways. And I, I'm now starting to see more clearly with time. It'll be um, 20 years ago, it, you know, coming up in 20 years that my father passed away super suddenly and we were really tight and he was a poet and he was kind of the whole point. Like it was like the narrator left and I was just this random character in this story that I didn't have any interest in being in, you know, it coincided with our first album coming out. And I just went fully, I basically just, I mean, I have a song crowd surf off a cliff. I get, I basically just feel like I did that. Like I just kind of jumped into the audience and didn't really ever come back until really quite recently, which I think is interesting with memory as well is when there's like whole periods of time when it's kind of just like, feels like time is flowing forward. And then you hit these moments where it's becoming a phrase. Um, same thing happens in music where you're like, oh, I've come to the end of a phrase. And now this whole thing is more concise and I can kind of compress it and have some sort of observation. So that's kind of how I feel about my, basically my entire 20 years and my entire adult life is like, I feel very present now. And I hope I get another chance to sort of actually witness what's happening as opposed to the what I would consider kind of the first time around I was just grieving and kind of it was just going by you know 
Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, my my mom passed just about ten years ago, and it, there's a weightlessness that happened to me, and a rootlessness because she was a matriarch. But also, when my own band started to do well, I was in another very bad. Like things were going so well, except in my personal life. And and I really connect. I look at shows like, you know, photos and it all looks so triumphant. And I'm like, oh my God, like I would come off stage and have these terrible phone calls. And it's 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 kind of hard to reconcile. So I don't, you know, people people say, oh, that, that was the best show ever, whatever. And you say, oh, I don't know. I, I didn't feel it that way always, but I, but I did jump into it. And I, I wanted to bring this up because you guys have been a band for 20 years. Hold Steady is going to be turning 20 next year. So I've been thinking a lot about this. Is there anything you've kind of re-examined the memory of? Like, is there anything that you told yourself one way the first time and maybe you are understanding differently now? Probably the whole thing, right? In a way, like I think when it's not so much that one perception is being replaced with another, it's more that my awareness is that there are so many perceptions of all of the things and that you, we were just on a roll and, you know, anything rigid that I thought I knew or understood or could like unequivocally say that those things are out the window. I have a much more nuanced sense of how it all transpired and whatever happened. And happily, for the most part, I really feel like I've been incredibly fortunate with the people I've crossed paths with and like, you know, uh, rogue exploitation you know, notwithstanding, for the most part, I feel like I I look at it and I'm like, man, what an incredible trip, literally. Um, so no, I don't I don't have like a, a precise things that I that I've switched my perception of. I just have a, a wash of um, amazement. <laughs> One of the things that happened to me recently, I, I had to move some stuff and I went I had this box of memorabilia and I pulled out and there were all these magazines. Remember magazines? And uh and I was reading, you know, and, there, and it was like our press. And what was interesting to me, and I think this is probably true, is, is it wasn't as glowing as I remembered it. It was more like this exists. <laughs> but, but in the magazine era, when there were ma- getting in the magazine was like in itself an approval, right? Like you, you didn't just get in there just because you started a band. So that was really weird to watch because they never said this is good. They just said this exists, or mostly that's what they said. Yeah, like, you know it's bad if the pull quote is too long. <laughs> you know, it's like, it shouldn't be a paragraph. It should be like, exultant. That's what, yeah. that should be a pull quote, right? <laughs> right. That, I mean, the other thing that I found is like, as, is these things that I experienced as very unique, you know? Like, you're like, yeah, we were in Manchester and we went to this great bar. We found this great bar. And then you realize, looking back, like, it's the nearest part of the venue every band goes there after their show and you feel like I felt like a little less unique, you know? Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's, I almost feel like there's a word for that because it comes up a lot as I get older. Generification. <laughs> the generification. Yeah. Of life. <laughs> of, of life or your own experience. Cause you're, 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 you're joining a circuit sort of, right. You know, and, um, and it's so exciting. And then you go through around it a few times and you start to take a little more different perspective. The first part of the band, when that, when that part, when you guys took off, did you, did you f- experience it now as a slog or as like a whirlwind? I think, I, did, I mean, definitely a slog, but I think that's predicated on the fact that we started out by having our album shelved, which 
kind of like a lot of things in life, you know, you're just, this is, this would be the major change I'd say in my perspective of things is that like, I'm no longer sure that something was bad or is bad. Even now as it's happening, when, when I get news that it's like, oh, guess what? And then it's like, man, for all I know, this is the best possible development. So for example, yeah. Do you want to work on your album for years and years and like quit your job in New York and move to England and be told you're, you know, going to get a huge record deal and do a publishing deal and do all this stuff and then have your album shelved probably wouldn't be your choice. But in this, but in the scheme of things, it was absolutely correct because those were like electronic bedroom recordings that Jimmy and I were just get, finding our way, getting the foundation of the two of us, the partnership, like lifelong, you know, writing, but we needed to put a band together, came back to New York, found Josh and Jules, got that band together slogged it out, played the Silver Lake Lounge, and then that's how Mike found us. And Old World Underground is definitely supposed to be our first record. You know, I don't have any, that's so correct, right? I don't even know what the question was. No, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's <laughs> accepting that it happens for a reason. And I think that's amazing. And I think you have to be experienced to, to get there. Last year, my band put out our eighth album. This is your eighth album. Do you ever have like, the elder statesman, does it, do you, do you ever get hung up on that sort of notion? I do like, like being an experienced band. Like I got really into like, who, what are the other eighth albums? I looked up like all these bands, eighth albums, and there's some really good ones, by the way. Um, but do you, do you ever feel that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you guys carry a torch that I need you to carry so that I have a reference point for what the hell I'm talking about of what people wanted to do with their lives. Like kind of back to earlier in our conversation about the concept of a band, not being like, Hey, like me and three other people, you know, or whatever. Right. It's not, it's not just like a mathematical thing of like, someone needs to cover this frequency. So you better hold this instrument. Like it's about uh, an ideology and, you know, and I think it can be incredibly juvenile or it can be incredibly uh, evolved, which, I think you can probably gather that I feel like we fall in the second category because I'm hanging out with these three really intelligent, amazing people. You know, Josh and Jules are both fathers now. You know, Jimmy's like, you know, curiosity and ability to grow as a producer, as a musician, as a player. Like, I'm just like, who is this guy who builds a studio? He like turned an old church into a recording studio where we're like recording the drums and the apps where the priest would stand. It's like, who is this guy? You know, that's how I feel every time I get to play music with these guys. And so you guys, like when I think of you guys, it's the same feeling that I get where I'm like, you know, there was a reason, there was a point. You're trying to communicate on this higher level. You're trying to like, you know, for me, like be called out on my bullshit. That's a huge part of what I love about being in my band. And, you, you know, coming up with ideas, having them be shot down, fighting for it, you know, handling your emotions and then being able to take that out and communicate that with other people. Like it's to me a completely different thing from being like a solo artist, like obviously no disrespect to that, whatever, but just, you know, when you talk about elder statesmen, the concept of being a band and the people who love the whole study, it's because you walk in and you're like, oh my God, like they're, the, they're still doing it. You know, it's so exciting. It's it, yeah. The produ the last record we made, the producer I'd, who I'd worked with before as a solo artist, he just said one day, like after the first day, he looked at me and said, you guys are like a band, huh? Like, like right? it, it only, it only functions as this, like it's not. And, and I think it can be intimidating to people even if, if it's, cause you walk in and you take over the room, right? You're, there's, there, 
there's a gang, right? So I'm interested in how records, like, like uh, one thing I, for myself, it almost is like when I make something, it's almost like marking your marking your height against the kitchen door when you're a kid. You know, it's sort of like a marking of time, like what's on your mind and a documentation of where we're at right now. And this record, Formentera, starts out with its epic 10-minute song, Doom Scroller. And it feels very of this moment. You, you mentioned QAnon, but you also get to this place where you say, whatever you do, we're going to love you, which is so beautiful. And it seems incredibly caring human. Is that, I mean, you talked about giving messages to your friend. Is that also to yourself? I mean, is that... We're, we live in these heavy times. Is that reminding yourself in some way? Well, I mean, I love that I get to have this conversation with you because, as you know, pronouns in songs have a whole other, like, voodoo. Um, so, so most times when I'm saying you, when I land on you, I think a lot of times it is exactly that. And that it's like, you know, the self-soothing component of composition, like, you know, for me, like I would say that I deal with like 90% of my problems by like working them out in code um, in a song and then making it useful to other people without including too much personal information in there. So that's like the sweet spot. So in this, in that case, that's a hundred percent. Cause I mean, that feeling of unconditional love is like the thing that, I mean, I got to surround myself with other people because I, can't give it to myself. I got to hang out with other people so I can be with people who are nice to me. Because <laughs> if I'm by myself, it's just a, it's a, it's a hellscape. It's a jailer. You know, it's just hanging out with like the meanest person. <laughs> so for sure that it's cool that you picked up on that particular line. Cause it's definitely like, whatever you do, unconditional love, come on, we can do this. I absolutely, I think that's one of the great things about being in a band is that I, there's stuff I would give up on if my bandmate wasn't like, no, that's great. That's great. Do that. Do more. And it's one of the absolute wonderful things about being in a band. The record to me, anyway, seems really rooted in the present, you know, versus nostalgic or anything. For all I know, this might be the last night as in all comes crashing. There's a sense of living in the moment. Is that something you were shooting for? Is that something you do shoot for? Is nostalgia dangerous to you at all? Yeah, I, I I think so. I mean, we gotta. It's it's always so weird with writing because you're you got to be ahead, right? It's like you're a fashion designer or something. You know, you're trying to be like two seasons ahead of yourself in a way. Um, and in particular with this album, we're like, well, this is not going to be a mopey album. I don't think I don't know that we've ever made a mopey album, but you know, world events notwithstanding, it's like this has got to be us projecting forward into this better time and this better feeling. So, um, but it's tricky with Sonics because when it comes to nostalgia, because I do feel like, you know, there's like a, there's a bit of a, there's a special combination when we get it right and we get it wrong all the time. But when we get it right with the balance of the electronic and the, and the rock elements, the organic and the, you know, the modular synthesis, that's more interesting than like, it's not like eighties keyboards. It's like, modular synthesis. So, so there is an element of us being aware that like metric fans, there's a sound and we can hear it too. When we get it, we're like, there's that thing that we don't understand, but that is sort of, you know, uniquely us. It's, I think the key is that the songwriting is always evolving, but I think we're okay. And not being nostalgic if we click into that sonically, which I feel like we were able to do on this album, you know, cause we're, we're discovering it as we go as well. Like there's a weird sort of telepathy happening 
you know, it's not a, it's not a formula. We just sometimes stumble on it and it's like, ah, there's that feeling. Yeah, yeah. Formentera, which I think is the fourth song, it comes along as a, uh, not as a relief, but maybe like a break or a calm. It's an island in Spain. Is it somewhere you guys spent time? Is that Does it represent some sort of tr- safety, tranquility, et cetera? Uh, I've been there, um, but it was because it was in this book when we were all totally spinning out in the studio, just locked down, endless lockdown winter. And uh, there was just a book in the studio that was like destinations, dream destinations. And we thought it would be a good exercise to turn to a page and visualize. We thought we might do a different one every day. And we ended up just, it stayed on Formentera. So I, it's weird now because I, I could go there. Um, but now, I, you know, technically, but I feel like now I got to wait till I got to wait till the very end of the album cycle and just go with the whole band. Yeah, right. I, I've I've always I've written a lot of songs about places I haven't been, and with the idea that it might bring me there, and uh, it's worked. Usually, it works. Well, I'm still still waiting to hear how the Formentera Tourism Board <laughs> feels about <laughs> metrics. So we'll see. <laughs> well, I I think it'd be awesome. One of my favorite songs is "Enemies of the Ocean," and at first glance, I was expecting it to be a climate change song. I'm not sure it is, or or is it? Or is it? Or is it? <laughs> I'm looking to you. Well, it's more of a heartbreak. So you can get your heart broken however you choose in these modern times. Any, there, you have an array of options of how you'd like your heart broken. Um, one way is to have a severance between continents um, and find yourselves unable to overcome the ocean that stands between those two land masses. Um, Or you can have your heart broken by a sea of plastic. Yeah. Knock yourself out. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Okay, so the other thing I've been trying to figure out uh, during this podcast is as an audience member, you know, and a music fan, I experience certain things, and I always wonder – having been on both sides of the stage, how people experience it. You know, sometimes you have an amazing, you go to an amazing show and who knows if the performer's enjoying it. But I always have been, I've been talking lately as it's summer, it's festival season. I kind of have this idea in my head that the shows I've loved most in my life are indoor shows because they can focus the energy. And and these these outdoor shows don't always, you know, they're, they're, they're fun. It's great to be out in the field drinking a beer. But there's this one show that I realize in my head was the major exception. It was 2006 at Lollapalooza. The Hold Steady played either before or two bands before Broken Social Scene. And I believe you were, you were there. It was an epic Broken Social Scene set. And I'm, that's how I experienced it, like magic. Do you experience it as epic that, that day or was that a, a show? Um, it's funny about Social Scene because those are, it's such a deep friendship with those guys. So it's already in a whole other category from like the criteria for a successful metric show, you know, it's, it's kind of measured like in hugs, um, <laughs> with social scene, but I do remember that being a really special day. And I also, one thing I remember from that day that was perhaps one of the most hilarious experiences of my life was being backstage. And I can't remember who this guy was. There was somebody's lawyer. Like it was a wild, it was a wild night for sure. Somebody's lawyer had a briefcase, um, handcuffed, to their hand, it was someone who is playing, and it's really bad. See, this is on. This is perfect for memory because Jimmy would remember exactly whose rep this person was. 
but it was someone who insisted on being paid in cash. And they, so the lawyer was there with the, the briefcase and the handcuff and the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. And they had cocaine in a, in a snifter, like a Dristan mister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're familiar with this. I had never seen that in my life. And the whole, all of us were like, forget you ever saw that because <laughs> cocaine should be disgusting and crusty and nasty. It should not be a moisturizing. This is a potentially life altering revelation that this could be a moisturizing experience. Like everyone forget this. And that's what I remember in addition to that amazing show was that guy with, and they were like, it was one of those things where they're like, now we're getting on the on the like float plane and like going to Hawaii or I don't know. It was like so hilarious. I've read about, I've read about that (laughs) Dristan bottle within things of like seventies rock. So the, the, the scene handcuffing a briefcase to yourself seems very, very, you know, Bill Graham in the seventies kind of vibe. Uh, so maybe those guys were very experienced festival rockers. Um, okay. One more. Do you think about legacy or do you just show up and go to work? Like, do you think, well, what do we need next? Or, or is it just like, let's, let's make, let's, let's create. I don't, I, I think about legacy. I think about like, because music can be so dumb. I just feel like I don't want to be that. I, I really want to feel like I didn't just do nothing with my life or like that. I was just like vain and dumb. I want to feel like it mattered. And we held it together and that for people who appreciate it, it, it's significant. And, you know, that all those letters I get and those conversations I have where people are serious about the ways that the music has helped them. Like, and I don't, I know I'm probably sound totally over earnest right now, but it's, it's genuine. I, you know, this is, uh, it's real. I don't know in terms of like, I don't want, you know, I need a statue in Tompkins square. Actually, that'd be kind of nice by the dog park. <laughs> but, uh, it's like, I need like, institutional recognition, I don't feel like, but it's cool. I I hope that there is some some sort of like consensus among, you know, the minute amount of the population that cares, such as you and I, about these themes and the reasons that we make music and what we're trying to contribute and do, that there's a sense of like, you know, authentication or validation there that we didn't just waste everybody's time. So well said. I feel exact same way, and I, I, I'm glad you put it that way. I'm going to listen to that again, because sometimes I need reminding. Thank you so much for doing this, and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I know you're going on tour this summer. Enjoy it all, and uh, hopefully our paths cross before too long. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Good times. Yeah. Good times indeed. A huge thanks to Emily Haynes for joining us here. That was really great. Check out the new Metric album, Formentera, and check out ilovemetric.com for their tour dates, which kick off soon and go through the fall. I myself will be heading on a tour with my band, The Uptown Controllers, in tow. We'll be in Europe and the UK in September, and then start a US tour in October. Uh, There's a Toronto date in October too, so I guess that's not just the US. We'll also be touring on the West Coast in November. Do check out the dates and get tickets at craigfin.net. These should be pretty spectacular shows. This version of the Uptown Controllers is a special one. We got great support on all the dates. I hope to see you in person. So I can thank you in person for listening here. I'm really enjoying doing this podcast, getting to talk to all these cool people. I appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you'll continue to do so and subscribe as we have even more great guests coming up on That's How I Remember It.